Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Bike Karma. I'm your host, Tom Brown. These are stories for everyone about bicycles and people and a point on the map for all folks who love all kinds of bicycles to connect and share stories. On today's show, flower bikes. In some countries, decorating your bike is a way to make your bike stand out in a crowded parking area. And in Florida, it's a way to make people smile. We finally talked to Warren Gregory, AKA Flower Bike Man. And then, parallel to the farm to table movement, small shops are producing cycling accessories clothing, frames, and even whole bikes. We talked to Eric Weiss from Providence, Rhode Island, about the Builder's Ball, a showcase for small-scale bicycle manufacturers from off-the-rack to bespoke custom orders. We look at the neo-cottage industry of bicycle making. And then, is it easier to do a wheelie or ride a unicycle? We talked to Keith Hughes about unicycles and why one wheel doesn't mean half the fun. You have a lot of podcasts to choose from, so thanks for coming along for the ride on this one. Let's roll out. Warren Gregory, aka Flower Bike Man. You know, you know, like the fun of my uh, Instagram. It's I sell smiles for free. You know, this is a this is a whole experiment on on positive energy. I think if I could get a huge amount of flower bikes on the London Bridge, man, that could be an awesome scene. You know, flower bikes yeah. are coming. Yeah, that's that's the goal. You know. Hello, I'm Warren Gregory. I'm the Flower Bike Man. I'm uh, currently living in Tarpon Springs, Florida, but as anyone knows who's traveled anywhere, flower bikes are worldwide. And, uh, you know, the best thing about a flower bike is the smiles that they generate. And so I always tagged myself as, you know, I sell smiles for free. And, uh, you know, the, the best thing of the to example is when I ride a regular bike and I have a full beard and long hair and sometimes my clothes are dirty and people uh, might give me a funny look when I'm on a regular bike. But if you... Uh, the same person riding a flower bike, they're more likely to say hello or smile or you could stop and talk to them and they don't feel threatened by anyone on a flower bike. So that was one very cool thing I noticed coming to America and doing flower bikes. Whereas in, in Europe, anyone knows, you see them everywhere. But I started here in, in Tarpon Springs with the flower bikes as kind of a uh, positive energy thing as also as a can't help the tourism. And my, my wife is epileptic and she was having a little problem getting to work sometimes. She's felt lost and so I would put these bikes uh, on her way to work while she rode to work and that started the Tarpon Springs where I had so many. I always had a flower bike but then I made more and then, uh, that's uh, what made me famous in Tarpon I guess and more people wanted a bike and more companies and there was all this you know well are you selling them are you doing this for the city and and uh, no I did it for uh, for myself for Michelle for, uh, uh, for positive energy in the town and it uh, really works you know you're putting positive energy out there into the universe is basically why you do it right that's 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 the whole uh, beginnings I mean that's what it's developed into started as you know other things of course you know I lived a long time in Amsterdam and there's so many bikes everywhere that you get off the train and there's 5,000 bikes in the parking lot so it was always uh, a thing for Amsterdamers is to put something on their bike to set theirs apart that for me it was always just a couple sunflowers and I could see my bike and then you run into other people that completely decorate their bike because well they've got their bike stolen so much so it, it uh, helps with uh People want to steal a bike that's decorated really good because they have to now get rid of that bike. 
kids are the first ones to notice a bike when you're riding along. And the kids always point, you know, and tell their parents, hey, look at the flower bike. So that's always cool when you see that. So I make sure I always ring my bell when I ride by and they point at me. And I guess the best message behind it is, yeah, positive energy can, can win. It's hard, like on the sponge docks here in Tarpon, every 50 to 75 feet is another one of my bikes. So, uh, I'm kind of keeping smiles going all down the street. <laughs> Do they get more advanced as you've done more of them? Can you tell yeah, the difference yeah, between the first ones and the later ones that you did? Yeah, you know, the first ones are just simple mine, my simple little, my colors. I like sunflowers and orange. And orange to me is always like a color that you never see unless two times in a day you see it in the sunset and the sunrise. But throughout the day, you never see those bright orange colors. Uh, those are my favorite bikes. They really stand out and they make people look. Of course, you want to be seen by people in cars. That's, that's a really big thing. <laughs> and at night, you know, the bikes, uh, that was something I developed later, was riding them up at night as LEDs came onto the scene and became super cheap then. You know, my, my last bike I just did has got 300 LEDs that I'm, I'm going to take pictures tonight, maybe. And it didn't cost much, 300 LEDs, and that's only like $30 worth of lights on it. The first bikes, yeah, they were simple one or two flowers and on the Amsterdam bikes there just for just to see it. But even in Amsterdam, you could still be riding along and someone would smile and, and even say, Mooly Bloomin', uh, you know, pretty flowers on your bike just out of nowhere. So that always stuck with me forever anywhere I went, you know. So it's not uncommon to see a flower bike, you know, people see them everywhere. I even bought some plates in the store recently with a flower bike on it. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Yeah, did you see that uh, Packer bike I made, you know, the uh, Green Bay Packer bike? Yeah, that one is uh, actually the first bike uh, that robots made, you know. That was a uh, grant, a federal grant to Emory University back in 76 to teach robots to build things. And that was one of the two bikes that they built at Emory University. The other one's in their trophy case, so in their uh, science wing trophy case, you know. The first bike built by robots, so you know, every bike almost now is built by robots, but this is this is the one that was uh, you know, the, the experiment. So it's cool because the badge on the front says Emory University 76. Picture. That's cool. I'm going to go check there it is, out. There is no other bike like that, you know. And it's green and yellow, and my wife's from Wisconsin, so boom, it became a Packer bike. And <laughs> we're waiting for the cheesehead that's on. It's supposed to be here in the mail anytime. You know, the cheese hat ring, and I'm going to turn the cheese hat upside down, and that's going to be the basket. Nice. The perfect basket. I always tell young, younger guys, you know, look, you know, if you put sunflowers on your bike, girls are going to pay attention to you. They're going to stop and talk to you. And this isn't something you should uh, be ashamed of to be a boy and put flowers on your bike. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's a heck of an icebreaker. Right, right. It immediately makes them uh, feel more comfortable that they can talk to you. So and it worked. You know, now they've got the, uh, the spoke covers and a couple of flowers, and they've decorated the bikes a little bit, you know. I'll slow down if people are trying to get their cameras out, you know. And everyone always says, oh, you should charge for pictures. And, uh, oh, no, that, that would completely defeat the purpose of the whole project, you know. <laughs> it would defeat it completely, you know. This is all that has cost me money. There's been a lot of people that have donated bikes and flowers and money even. I mean, just uh, 
just last week, this guy uh, flagged me down from the street and just to tell me how much he liked the USA bike, the red, white, and blue flowers and the flags on it, and how appreciative he was of that bike sitting out on the corner. And then uh, he said, keep it up, and he put 220s in my hand, and off I went, you know, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Just a total random stranger, you know, and this happens, you know, this happened, oh, God, I can't even tell, maybe more than 10 times someone has handed me money to tell me to keep it up, you know. And that's always cool, you know, that instantly that makes me happy, and I have to go and add flowers to something, you know. <laughs> So if somebody comes up to them, are they chained in place or are they there for people to ride? Well, you know, sadly, it used to be that way where they could be. They used to always be open for anyone to ride, but uh, a few people ruined that. You know, I lost 13 bikes over last year. It was only only a couple of people that did it that made me lock bikes up now. And I don't have any unlocks that people can ride anymore. All the all the share bikes that I had got stolen, and who knows where they are now. They were, uh, that was a great idea, but uh, two people ruined it. <laughs> You know, the idea of if you're going to have a share bike, you know, this credit card swiping share bike, that is not a share bike. I always propose, and I propose to my city, is screw all that. That's such an investment in time and energy with all these credit cards and these machines and a special bike. For the same money you waste on that, you could just buy 200 Huffy bikes and paint them the color of your city and put them out there. You know, yeah, maybe you lose 10 or 20 bikes, but there's still 180 bikes that are there for people to ride, you know, and uh, eliminate the whole fake share bike and put real share bikes out. You know, every five years, you might have to add some or fix some or, you know. But uh, that would really separate you as a city, I would feel. You would think that but, uh, having a beautifully flowered bike with tons of foliage on it would be a deterrent to theft. It usually it would be. But uh, there was uh, one guy that, uh, oh, that's, that's the most horrible thing of it, is it's not even the bike, you know. It's, it's seeing the bike is gone, and then around the corner, behind a building, next to a dumpster, next to a tree, somewhere... I found the murder spot where everything has been ripped off the bike, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, the lights, the, you know, this stuff laying in a pile is worth more than the bike even, you know? And it's all broken. Yeah, that's that's been the hard part of it. That was the worst part of it all, and that's why I had to start locking them. And, and then the same guy got bolt cutters, and he, he cut a few more, and, you know... Karma eventually got him, by the way. He's a, he went to jail a few times. His heart had, had some valve issues. He went to the hospital. He just recently uh, tried to steal a bunch of beer at the save a lot and got arrested. So I know where he's at. <laughs> and the other one that stole a few bikes, well, he uh, stole from the wrong person and got stabbed really good at the bus stop. I just try to uh, try to keep it a little safer now. Unfortunately, that means the people around here can't ride the bikes that they, they used to do. You know, A lot of the workers would borrow one from one of the restaurants and go to the store and, and come back or go home and bring it back the next day. I had about five that sat there, and some of them had signs on it that said, borrow me, bring me back. But, uh, yeah. But that's, uh, you know, that's still a progress in working. It can still happen. It's just a, it's a difficult thing when it's only me doing it. A lot of bikes get stolen. Now I can't do it anymore. <laughs> 
what makes you start to look at a bike and say, there's a bike over there that somebody's throwing out, or there's one in my boneyard in the yeah, back. Yeah. And what gets you going like, I know what I'm going to do with that. I'm going to, how, how does that process start? Yeah, I, I can never explain that. That's a hard one for me. Then it's after I ride it for a while. You know, first I ride it a good two days, even a week or so of just riding it and seeing how it rides. and. And it's weird now because people are on my channel and they're always like, oh, where's the flowers? Where's the flowers? You know, and then they, they're waiting to see what's going to happen. And, and not every bike becomes one. Sometimes uh, someone needs a bike and I end up giving the bike to them because they need a, a bike to get to work or something. And uh, it's a very, it's a difficult thing to, to even come out how this happens, you know, because uh, any colors can be made on any bike, so it's not always the colors. It's sometimes if this bike is going to be for somebody's house, it kind of has to, you know, I know that this person would like a bike in their yard or this business, and then I come across a bike that matches the color of that business or the, or the house, and that may have been six months later that someone said that. All of a sudden, it'll show up in their yard, you know, and there it is. <laughs> That's, that's a really common way of how things have happened. I don't have the bike on, on the spot when somebody says they want one, and, and I don't charge for them, so it's... Uh, are they all rideable, or are they all decorative, or some are uh, rideable and some are 90, decorative? 99% are rideable. They start out rideable, but sometimes after sitting a while, you know, things get rusted shut. But uh, the main goal is to make sure that they can be ridden. You know, I'm going to be going on this European flower bike tour here this fall. So the ones that are here, I'm going to leave here that are kind of in businesses and a few houses, but uh, I'm going to take about 10 of them with me. And uh, I'm going to put them in, uh, I'm going to try to start at uh, maybe London and do the London Bridge and then over to Paris and Nice and Brussels and uh, do a few weeks in each one of these cities that have been hit tragically and uh, see if I can't uh, make a little positive energy happen there. It's quite a sight when you see 10 of these bikes all in one spot, you know, it's a, it's a big sight and people start wondering what's going on. Is there a parade? Is there a competition? Is there a, who, who is it? <laughs> That's half the fun of sitting around and, and they don't know it's you, but you're sitting around and you can hear the conversations people have, you know, as they're walking, looking at the bikes. Oh, maybe each store is having a competition of each who's got the best bike or I think there's a parade or, and then, uh, you know, people will ask you and you tell them and then they you see that N or, uh, you know, how or why, you know, why do you just do this? And I said, well, you're, you're smiling and you took pictures and well, there it is. That's all it's worth for me. I, I, I like to think, man, I can't imagine how many phones that my bikes are in, you know. They don't all make it to the internet, but there must be half a million phones that have a picture of one of my bikes in them. <laughs> and that, that is something to think about, you know, in my life later. It's like, yeah, oh, that's a that's a lot of people have come through and taken pictures over the years. That's so one of those weird numbers, number games you can think about. I just keep doing it. It's too much fun now. The message has gotten bigger. The, the whole idea has grown to a, a new level of what it was. And it was always a positive thing, but it's even more now. It's uh, something I want to try to globalize on and, and show people uh, in other places. You know, we're not afraid. We're going to come out here and celebrate and have some flower bikes and uh, no problem. So that's, uh, that's my future with the flower bikes, is to make them more. I don't know what else. <laughs> Just be happy, you know. You're kind of like a Johnny Appleseed of bikes that make people smile. Yeah, yeah. See what people are doing in pictures and the happiness over nothing, you know. It's just a flowered bike. But uh, 
it does something to somebody, you know, it's a weird thing. You know, and there's some, you know, like a computer bike, and I don't know if you've seen that one, but that one, uh, I've had some people, they go crazy over that bike. How, it's all motherboards and the, and the empty monitor on the front is the basket. And, it's got twinkly lights and it's yeah, it's a, just a computer uh, old computer parts bike but guys that have lived in this town this whole time tell me how much they like it and I go oh well, I do all the flower bikes too and, and this guy looked at me and he's like what flower bikes <laughs> and like there's, there's 20 around on the neighborhood streets here you don't see no I've never seen one <laughs> but he saw the computer bike it stood out to him and he well, he wanted to buy it either you know <laughs> I just keep doing these happy bikes, you know, and that's that part of me that keeps me keeps me going. If people want to check you out, go check you out on Instagram at Flower Bike Man, and yes. you've inspired me to look into decorating some of my bikes. Yeah, well, thank you, and uh, yeah, there's there's always something you can do, you know, just to make it a little flashy, even if it's just chrome, right? Yep. <laughs> like I said, it's a constant growing thing, you know. They're beautiful. Thank you so much. Oh, all right, man. It's the year's best party for anybody who's into bikes. That's, that's a tall order. Can you back that up, sir? <laughs> I have the fuel for that fire. Okay. Yes, indeed. And it's kind of like going to a museum, but you're able to run your fingers, run your grubby paws all over all the artwork. I'd known Eric for a while from his work on the East Coast Greenways, but we had never met before. So I drove to Providence, Rhode Island, a place I hadn't gone for a few years. I had many times wanted to come back and ride my bike around, but just never seemed to have the time to make the two-hour ride there. In fact, it had probably been close to like 19 years since I'd been there, hanging out on Thayer Street and buying stuff from Brown University because it had my name on it. I didn't go there. So when I finally got to East Providence and I pulled off the easy exit and went right around to this beautiful linear park, I was like blown away. If you ever have a chance, check out the East Bay bike path. It's really cool. I met up with Eric and we drove from coffee shop to bike path to coffee shop and took turns buying each other coffees. In between, we talked about his event, the Builder's Ball. While part of this is going to seem a little bit like a commercial, it is, but it's also the story of a grassroots event and a movement, micro-industry, to make things, in this case, for bicycles. My name is Eric Weiss. I'm from Providence, Rhode Island, and I run the Bike Party of the Year, which is the New England Builders Ball. It's our region's only hand-built bike show, and this fall we'll be having the seventh annual edition this year in Boston at the Boston Design Center. As always, 
uh, running it uh, in part to raise funds for important nonprofits this year, the East Coast Greenway Alliance, MassBike, and the Boston Cyclists Union. The Builder's Ball is really about hand-built bicycles. People, companies, sometimes just one person, sometimes a shop of three or four or five guys or women who are doing custom work, measuring your limbs and your torso, your reach, interviewing you about how you ride and where you ride, and then cutting steel or titanium or aluminum tubes or even wood in some cases to make a bicycle that fits you and the way you ride perfectly. This year's show will have, I think, 34 exhibitors in their booths at the Boston Design Center showing off what they do and eager to have conversations with people who understand the qualities of materials and um, the pros and cons of TIG welding versus brazing versus lugged construction, or people who are interested in learning more uh, about those different ways of finishing a bike and different components and accessories. We'll also have accessory makers, so people who are building bags, you know, in, sometimes in their kitchen with an industrial <laughs> strength sewing machine, making bags that are specific for randonneuring or touring in the, the capacity that you want and the colors that you want for the riding that you want to do. People don't think that people are that companies are still making garments in the United States, and it's true that it's rarer and rarer. Just as with any other manufacturing in, in North America, we have one of the world's most creative makers of rain capes for cyclists, fabricating those capes in Fall River, Massachusetts. Every year, they come out to the Builders Ball to show what they've been up to with their designs and their materials. From my perspective, for all of these people who are making stuff related to bicycles and bicycling. I couldn't be prouder to help shine a spotlight on what they're doing, put them on a platform. The show is less like a trade show, which technically it is, and more like a gallery opening. So it feels like a party, so it's very low pressure, and it's a lot of fun. This micro-manufacturing, these smaller builders, are the next wave of manufacturing in the United States. I think there's something to that, and I think it comes full circle. Uh, this part of New England was big in textiles and tooling, rubber, locomotives, and particularly the textile industry. But then it became easier, cheaper, to manufacture those textiles in the Carolina, in Georgia, in the industry moot. And we all said, oh, come on now. What are we going to do? All those jobs moved to the Carolinas, and they were all like, hey. And then all those jobs moved to where? Vietnam, Central America, where, again, it's less expensive to produce textile. But it seems as working conditions improved, cost increased and they would go look for another place where the working conditions might not be as good. And then as working conditions increase anywhere, you've got an exodus from that area to another place where they don't necessarily have to treat people or the environment as well. Right, so hopefully at some point, we'll have this worldwide, the whole world, <laughs> the whole world go around all workers, you know, place. laborers worldwide will be treated properly, right? And then, and then there'll be more of a equal footing. But I'm thinking about your, your point in the context of bicycle manufacturing. So the, the history of bicycle manufacturing in North America begins in New England. And a French guy named Pierre Lallemand, well, let's just say he borrowed some blueprints <laughs> from, <laughs> from his business partners and 
came to uh, Massachusetts and then to Hartford, I think it was. New Haven? Um, New might have been New Haven, thank you. And found investors, and in particular, the founder of Columbia, Colonel Pope. So Columbia Bicycles made in Hartford and then in Westfield, Massachusetts. Pretty much, at one point, pretty much every city of New England, even the small cities, were turning out bicycles. Now, they weren't all necessarily all that good, and, you know, a lot of them were made from old rifle stocks that were left over after, after the Civil War, let's say. There's just like all these stocks of tubing. That's one of the materials that could be used for, for making bicycles cheaply. With the exception of the Columbia Corporation, they were pretty much small shops. As the decades rolled on, it took a turn, and eventually it became less expensive to produce all those things in other countries. And now most of the bikes that are for sale in North America are made in Taiwan, Taiwan or mainland China. We talked about the emergence of micro-manufacturing of bicycles in New England and across the East Coast. Boston, Providence, Hartford, and New York City, and Philadelphia, and on and on. There are small shops in every almost every small city you go to. Again, where people are making bikes out of top materials, using great techniques, and largely custom made for clients rolling out of these cities. Or maybe you equate it to cottage industry, where some of the best bikes in the world are being produced, and it's really exciting. We see movies about working conditions around the world, and we see videos online, and we see that sometimes people are treated very poorly in those countries, in those factories, as were they here back in the day. Mm -hmm. And for a while, Hartford specifically was kind of in a position with some of the makers of bicycles in England as China has been to the United States more recently, where we were cranking out what some would say an inferior product to what they had, and we were also working the workers a little bit harder and a little bit worse conditions. And then as working conditions improve, you tend to, your costs go up, your margins go up. And at some point, it makes it seem worthwhile if you're looking at the numbers as a bean counter to move that production somewhere else. But I think that with these hand-built bicycles with that it's not so much the elitism of being a hand-built bicycle in many cases it's more that you want to like when you buy a fair trade coffee and you think to yourself I want to make sure that this coffee is not hurting people or, or people are getting cheated out of it it's hard to do that from around the world it's hard to say like here is this bike right here was put together by people who were treated fairly well it's a, there's a lot of research involved with trying to do that, and there's a lot of subterfuge that surrounds that. So when you buy something locally, there's this idea that you're paying for it, but then there's this huge premium that goes onto the price with North American handmade bike. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I like the parallel you drew. You could also draw the farmer's market parallel. So I can go to the grocery store and get factory farmed eggs. And I know those chickens are treated you know, horribly. And it comes in a styrofoam container, which will exist for the, you know, forever in some landfill. And they're super cheap. Or I could go to the farmer's market and I chat with that farmer and I know that they're fond of their birds. And yes, eventually when they stop laying. Um, but you know, farmer, farming is not, is not easy. I feel better about paying half again more for those eggs. That's also a good parallel, I think. 
I, I would certainly wait a while and save my money if I could be sure to buy fair trade certified or a ethically produced bike from, from anywhere in the world. I don't have any qualms about anywhere in the world that's producing bikes as long as the people who are, are making the bikes are treated well. And if the product is good. And if the product <laughs> is good, obviously. Yeah. But then we've got a whole nother level. So we've got people making bikes locally, which are very reasonable, considering the fact of their scale of production, they're actually kind of competitive for something that's handmade specifically for you. And, and these people are not getting wealthy by any stretch. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got people who are like way up there. What, what, who, who comes to this? Do, does everybody in that up and down the ladder come to this show? Uh, yeah, I try to, I always keep my exhibition, uh, exhibitor fees quite low make it very reasonable so that guys who are new to the game or maybe have been having a rough year can still take advantage of that platform of coming to the show. There, there are other great shows around the country. The most famous is the North American Hand-Built Bike Show. That's a true expo. It takes place in an enormous expo hall and it's all fluorescent lighting and a very much an expo and not taking anything away from the quality of, of, of that show for what it is, it's excellent. For us here in New England, the, the next closest show to the Builder's Ball is the one in Philly, the Philly Bike Expo, which goes every fall, I think, in November. And that's a great show. It, it's a fairly low-pressure show, and it's grown a lot in the last several years, and I really like what they've done with it. The Builder's Ball is even more low-key, like I said, more like a gallery opening. And there's music playing, and people are walking around with beer and snacks and having these more casual conversations. I think that's something that is of appeal to everybody involved. It's more fun for me, for the people exhibiting, they're enjoying being there because it's like they're showing off their goods at a gallery and people are there having basically having a party and it's a lot more fun for them and a lot more relaxing. And for people attending, they're having a great time and there's no stark fluorescent lighting as if you had gone to a car show or something. It's, it's a gala is what it is. We're celebrating the bicycle and we're celebrating small scale manufacturing and we're all just you know gathering together as this tribe of people that love bicycles and bicycling. One of the, another one of the things that I really love about this show is that it's just so broad. So we've got people who build road bikes and people who build touring bikes, randonneuring bikes, track bikes, mountain bikes, trail bikes, radical downhill bikes with just crazy suspension and really radical geometry. It's everything. One thing we have not yet had is BMX builders. Would love to get them in the room too. And so, and we have people building these bikes from different types of steel and, and aluminum and titanium. And last year we had a bamboo bike builder. This year we're gonna have a guy who, who builds bikes, wooden frames from wood. And they're spectacular. And he's doing that out of Cape May, New Jersey. And I couldn't be more excited that he's gonna be in the room. And small shops in New England that are making these crazy uh, mountain bikes designed for downhilling. It's just spectacular. And for people who love bikes in general, it's really exciting. Now the show used to be always timed with and located near KMC Cyclocross Festival. Every year it was within a couple miles of the races and always timed to be the night before the races start. And as a result, the crowd was very cross-heavy and the exhibitors knew the crowd was going to be cross-heavy. This year, not so much. This year it's going to be a lot more even and I think that the crowd will be a lot more diverse and, and so will the, the range of products that we, we see from the exhibitors. 
Um, sometimes bikes get sold at the show, but exhibitors don't come expecting to leave with fewer bikes than they came with. What they're expecting, now if they do, well, hallelujah, you know, great. Um, but what they're expecting is to have good conversations and make contacts and get people's email addresses and cultivate future customers. So the birth of the New England Builders Ball, how did this show come to be? The way this show came about was I was hanging out with some friends and I started complaining about how the, New the North American hand-built bike show never comes to New England. And yeah. Yeah, so, and you know, it's great that it runs, it jumps around the country. In Charlotte one year, and then Portland another year, and blah, 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 blah. And my friend Portland Richard- doesn't have enough bikes. Yeah, well, you know, the other Portland. I, <laughs> I always think of it as the other Portland. Um, so my friend Richard says to me, Eric, stop complaining and do something about it. And I, I, I did sort of fingers rubbing my chin whiskers and said, hmm. And I, I went and had a chat with the fellows who at the time were running Circle A Cycles here in Providence, Chris and Brian. And they said, you know, that's an interesting idea. And we really need a show in New England. And let me ask around. I'm gonna send some emails around with uh, like our network of frame builders in the area. I'll let you know what they think. And people thought it was a good idea. That first year, I made it free to exhibit and free to attend. And I owe a, gr uh, a big debt of gratitude to the fellows from Circle A Cycles, Chris Bull and Brian Chapman. Brian now runs his own shop, Chapman Cycles. So that was 20, 2011, and here we are in 2017, about to do the seventh annual show. Every year the show has gotten better, bigger, more fun to be at, and um, hopefully better for the exhibitors as well. I, and I think I can say that yes to that because they keep coming back. And if it wasn't doing them any good, they wouldn't be re-registering every year. And ultimately, this is a show for the exhibitors because I want to make a platform to help them show off the amazing things that they're doing. And then there's all the people who want to come to the show and they need to know where and when and they can find all that information. Reach me through the website, which is newenglandbuildersball.com or find me through Instagram, which is at buildersball or through our Facebook page. You can just search for Build New England Builders Ball. And I'm hoping to see a couple thousand people walking through the Boston Design Center on Saturday, September 23rd, between 2 and 10 p.m. And while you're there, be sure to have lots of good conversations and learn a lot about what these builders are doing with different materials and for, for different types of writing and uh, bring some friends. So if you wanted to find out more, go check out Builders Ball on Instagram if you wanted to get involved for this year or maybe even looking ahead towards next year. Eric wanted to thank his gold level sponsor, Copenhagen Wheel, and his silver level sponsors, Shimano and Harpoon Brewery. It is pretty hard coming up with an event like this, so he appreciates all the help from everybody involved. I have a feeling we're going to hear more from Eric in the future, mostly because I got two other short stories recorded, and he also talked to me about the development of the East Coast Greenways, which I am really excited about. While the Bike Karma podcast encourages you to challenge yourself and think outside of your regular cycling routine, we are not compelling you to try things like unicycling, downhill mountain bike racing, 
illegal fixed gear races through Manhattan at rush hour, rail riding on active tracks, deep river diving to reclaim stolen bikes, setting up your own sting operation for bootleg carbon wheel sets, or anything else that might go wrong in your life. What you do is always up to you. This show and all the episodes are about stories, not advice. Always consult your doctor, therapist, life coach, accountant, lawyer, and an impartial civil engineer before doing anything new. The only exception for this is leaving a nice review for us on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or any other podcast service. That should be okay, and will be greatly appreciated. Keith Hughes from the Bike Karma Podcast. A lot of people think about, I'd like to know how to ride a unicycle. And many people have them hanging up in their house for someday, yeah. waiting to be able to, to ride that unicycle. So how would you start to ride a unicycle and what's your background in it? Okay, um, my background is I learned how to unicycle in college and I probably wanted to unicycle long before that. My father actually learned in our basement holding on to uh, the rafters. And uh, I had learned how to clown when I was a freshman in college. I started to perform at summer camps. And no, I thought, wait, 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 we were all clowns in college. We were, but literally I learned how to do makeup. You were I a literal to, clown. Yeah, I learned how to okay. juggle, uh, balance things. And so I was actually getting ready to join a circus called the Royal Lichtenstein Quartering Sidewalk Circus when I thought it'd be good to learn how to ride a unicycle. So I borrowed my dad's old unicycle and learned how to ride my unicycle in my dorm. And that would be my suggestion to anybody who has a unicycle. One, when they get their unicycle, make sure that, that it, it fits them. Make sure their legs are not too scrunched up or too fully extended, but they should be almost like they're riding a bike and be able to get their balance forward and backward by just holding on onto a wall. Some people would literally just fall off of it, even if they're holding on to say a telephone pole or something like that. So a nice, flat, narrow hallway would be a great place to learn. Uh, yep, a great okay. place, or right. possibly against a, a building, a, a, like maybe a school that has a, a, a nice long brick wall that you could lean either your left or your right arm against, because you want to be able to... Okay, so you're telling people they should break into schools, or no, break, no. Into, break into dorms, <laughs> no, 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 no matter no, what their age is. No breaking into schools, no, no that, that's, not, oh, okay. that's not allowed. All right. Uh, everything legal. Okay. So the, the main thing is, can they keep their back? Can they keep their center of gravity above the seat in the wheel? So that's like, don't rock back and forth, side to side. At this point, you're not worrying about. And then as you ride forward, I always say, pick a point that you're riding to, look at it, and try to maintain that center of gravity. Your 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 belly and your posture up. You want your head up. The minute your head goes down when you're unicycling, that's when people fall off or step off. 
so and, keep your head up. Yeah, right. I guess it's it's good practice maybe to to have a helmet, but mostly what I find is there's no great falls from a regular unicycle. You just really step to the ground. You know, you're gonna catch yourself. Don't if you feel like you're falling, don't hang on for dear life so that you do fall and crash. Just put your foot down and get back up again and try it again. And, but I think by just holding on to say a pole and letting go. You're going to be very frustrated because you'll do one pedal, two pedals, maybe three pedals, but you're, you're never really going to get that feeling. You want to, by holding onto a wall or leaning against a wall or a long surface, you can start to get the feeling of what it's like to carry your weight over the tire and over the unicycle. Okay. And that's really what you want to do. And then it is. It's just practice and practice. You know, I, I can't remember how long it, it took me, a few weeks, you know, but just going out a little bit at a time. If you can't do a wheelie on a bicycle, yes, does it mean you can't ride a unicycle? Great question. Uh, no, uh, I, I don't think they're totally related. So it's a different type. It's of a different because you're pulling that tire up and you're pulling your weight, everything at the same time. With the unicycle, you really are maintaining your your center of gravity the whole time over the the seat. And I think as when you pull a wheelie, that would be like more advanced. Then as you do more and more advanced unicycle tricks, of course, then you're going to be playing with that so center of gravity. this is more like a track stand. Yeah, just getting okay. getting used to it and uh, learning it. Um, cool. Yeah. So uh, and I would say everybody can do it. It just takes practice, and I think having the right spot. Thank you very much. I'll Thank give it a you. try as All right. soon as the show winds down. And I will be listening to this podcast <laughs> right, and tell thanks. my friends. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. That wraps it up for this episode of Bike Karma. Thanks to Warren, Eric, and Keith for being on the show. You may have noticed there were no commercials. So far, the podcast is just a labor of love for bicycles and the people I meet through the bicycling world. If you want to show some love back, please share, subscribe, like, follow, and especially review on social media and your podcast platform. It is greatly appreciated. I want to thank Rob Rides Bikes, ZVV6430-6899, Rizzo659, Hikira Tannen, Infinite Loop 3, Iron Sharpener 247365 for following on Podbeam. And also, Were Will, Slow Jesse, and Justin K for leaving reviews on iTunes. And a special thanks for Brad and the team at the Rail the Berm podcast for BMX Racing for having me on as a guest and saying some really nice things about the show. Check out their show if you want to find out more about BMX Racing. Our theme music is by Keller Glass and the band Mob Jack. Check them out at mobjackmusic.com. You'll be glad you did. The Bike Karma podcast and the Bicycle Karma Cat logo by my daughter are the intellectual property of Tom Brown. Trademark, copyright, and all other rights are reserved. Some future segments in the works are Westfield Columbia Bicycles, made right in Massachusetts. The Singapore Bike Share Program, which may have as many as 30,000 bikes in a 700 square mile area. What to do when you find a possum on the side of the road or trail. And emotional support if you think your bike has been talking to you. To get a hold of me, DM me on social media or email me 
at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for coming along for the ride, and keep it wheel. Like these that I